Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you open our eyes to your word, enlighten us by your truth, challenge us by it, that we may honor you and obey you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a few weeks since we were last together together on a 930, and so let me just remind you of where we are. We're in a study of the covenants. There are four main covenants, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and the New Covenant. We spent quite a bit of time on the Abrahamic, and last time we saw an introduction to the Mosaic Covenant. So today is our second class on the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant is also referred to as the Mosaic Law, or as the Torah, or as the Sinai Covenant, or the Sinaitic Covenant, because it was given by God to Moses to give to the people at Mount Sinai. That was the location in which the law was given. And so we call it the Mosaic Covenant, not because it's Moses' covenant. We call it the Mosaic Law, not because it's Moses' law, but because Moses was the intermediary. Moses was the human mediator between God and the people. And so God gave the law to Moses. He gave it to the people. We call it the Mosaic Law or the Mosaic Covenant. As we saw last time, all of the covenants, all four of them, are sourced in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. We've seen the passage many times before, but it is so fundamental to our understanding of the Scripture that it deserves repetition over and over and over. You cannot understand the Bible. You cannot understand God's plan for redemptive history if you do not understand Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It is at the core of the outworking of His plan of redemption of humanity, and for that matter, even the world. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, read like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a bless. so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Out of this passage, which is the first declaration of the Abrahamic covenant, out of this passage, the Abrahamic covenant is established, but then all the other covenants flow out of it. The other three, the Mosaic, Davidic, and New. This passage, as we've seen, has really three parts to the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. Land, God would give Abraham individually, as an individual, as as Abraham himself and his family, a place to live there in the land of Canaan. God would give the land that he promised, which included Canaan and even beyond Canaan, he would give that to the nation of Israel, to Abraham's descendants. That's land, as we've seen. And then there's the seed part of the promise. God made Abraham's descendants into a great nation, and the promised seed of the woman would come through the line of Abraham. Blessing. The third part of the Abrahamic covenant, there was great blessing for Abraham individually, blessing for the nation of Israel, and blessing for the world through the Jews, and specifically, especially through Messiah. The Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenants are the outworking of the land, seed, and blessing parts 
of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Davidic, the, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenants are the manner in which God fulfills the land, seed, and blessing parts of the Abrahamic Covenant. But our study today is not on those other covenants, it's on the Mosaic Covenant. That's the promise that God gave to Israel as to how they would receive the national blessing. Land, seed, blessing, Abrahamic covenant. Blessing is not just for Abraham, but also for the nation, for his descendants. And so the way, the manner in which they, the nation of Israel would receive the blessing, part of the promise, was through the Mosaic law, through the Mosaic covenant. It's the promise that God made with Israel after he freed them from Egypt, but before he brought them into the land of promise. The Mosaic Covenant is fundamentally different, fundamentally different than the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant is unconditional. The Abrahamic Covenant is unilateral. The Abrahamic Covenant is everlasting. The Abrahamic Covenant is irrevocable. The Mosaic Covenant is none of those things. The Mosaic Covenant is conditional. It's bilateral. It's temporary. Temporary in the sense that and when I say temporary, I mean aspects of it are, are temporary. Aspects of it are also forever. But it has a temporary component. There is no part of the Abrahamic covenant that is temporary. All of the Abrahamic covenant is eternal. So the Mosaic covenant, unlike the Abrahamic, the Mosaic is conditional. It is bilateral. And <clears throat> there are other differences that we'll see between it and the Abrahamic covenant as we go along. We left off last time with a list of reasons why God gave the Mosaic Covenant. We studied the first two last time, just by way of refresher. The first reason that he gave the Mosaic Covenant was to reveal his holiness. Remember, the Israelites have just left Egypt, where they've been for 400 years. They have been exposed to pagan God after pagan God after pagan God after pagan God. That was the reason for the plagues. Right. Part of the reason for the plagues was to free the Israelites from the grip of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but also to show <clears throat> excuse me, the Israelites that the gods of the Egyptians were no gods. They were worthless. They were a joke. Because each of the plagues were designed to show that the, that the gods that the, that the Egyptians had couldn't perform. We'll, we'll study that at some point in the future. But the, the plagues were specifically crafted by God to display the nothingness, the worthlessness of the Egyptian gods. So the Israelites leave Egypt having been exposed to all of these pagan gods, and they're about to go into a land, the land of Canaan, that is full of pagan gods. Whether it's the God of the Philistines or the Canaanites or the Moabites, full of pagan gods. And so... The first reason why God gave the law was to reveal His holiness, unlike the pagan gods, right? The pagan gods, they raped, they stole, they murdered. They were very immoral because they were a reflection of the people who created them. They're a reflection of the pagan peoples. They create gods that match who they are. And so as we saw last time in the Mosaic Law, in the Torah, God says, that's not me. That's not me. I'm holy, I'm righteous, and this is what I require of my people. Remember in the book of Levit Leviticus, 
God says to the people, I'm holy, so you shall be holy. That's repeated for us as well in the New Testament. God is holy, so he calls his people to be holy. He says, don't do what your pagan neighbors do. Don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie, don't murder, don't covet, don't engage in homosexuality, don't engage in adultery, don't engage in bestiality, don't cross-dress, don't engage in incest. There are sexual ethics because I'm holy. There are financial ethics. Don't cheat, don't steal because I'm holy. The way you interact with people matters because I'm holy. This is what is revealed in the principles and the precepts of the Mosaic Law. The second reason why God gave the law or the the covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was to show the Israelites the total inadequacy of their own righteousness. The law revealed the reality that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul said in Romans 3.23. Paul describes this reason for the law in Galatians 3.19, where he says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, Paul says in Galatians 3.19. The whole sacrificial system, the whole animal sacrificial system pointed the people to their need for a sin solution. solution. Right? I mean, you had to bring your animal to the temple. I mean, the whole issue of sin and the sacrificial system was a graphic, gruesome reminder of the inadequacy of the human heart, of the brokenness, the unrighteousness of the human heart. I mean, we take sin so casually. We even name a city after it. Sin City, going to Vegas. You want to go to Vegas? No problem. Just don't sin when you're in Vegas, right? But... We're flippant about sin. We're casual about sin. That's not the way the law designed it. That's not the way the Mosaic Covenant spells it out. You had to bring your cuddly, adorable, sweet little sheep, your sweet little goat, there to the temple to the priest, and you cut its throat. The worshiper cut its throat. Blood spewing everywhere all over your garments and the priest's garments, and the, the priest ha- captures the blood and he sprinkles it on the altar. It's this gruesome affair because the animal sacrifice represented something. God designed this graphic scene that was repeated over and over. You didn't just do that once with your cute little sheep, your cute little goat. You did it over. And over and over. And it was designed for so you... I got it. I keep doing this over and over, God. I get it. I'm inadequate. That's why I have to repeat this thing over and over. I need you. This image shows my need for something more. For something more than who I am. Because I'm broken. The sacrificial system that is baked into the law, embedded in the law, the animal sacrificial system, was designed to show the people their inadequacy in terms of their own unrighteousness. The system continually, continuously exposed the worshiper to his own sinfulness. Look at Leviticus 17, verse 11, where you, you, you see an image of 
or, or you see God's description and the significance of the animal sacrifice in a very graphic way. Leviticus 17, verse 11, which I've put on the screen here, it reads like this. God says, for the life of the flesh, the reference there is the flesh of the animal, for the life of the flesh of the animal is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. That's the Hebrew word nephesh. It can be translated soul. It can be translated life. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. In other words, life for life. The life of the animal for the sinner's life. The animal's blood was shed for the sinner's soul. As this gruesome, graphic image. The animal's life, his blood, its blood, was offered as an atonement to God for the worshiper's sin. Now, it's not that the blood itself gave atonement. It's not that the blood itself provided forgiveness of the sin. The animal didn't do that. That's why the language says here, I have given it. God says, I have given it. He designated it. He designated the animal's life as a symbol for the atonement. It pointed to the need for a permanent sacrifice. That's why when Jesus came to this earth, when God the Son became incarnate as a man, in Hebrews 10.5, Jesus said, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The animals, the goats, the bulls, the sheep that were sacrificed were representative. God, it says, he says here, had given them. He had designated them as symbolic, as pointers, pointing to the Lamb without spot and without blemish. Of course, the law was never a means of salvation, as we saw last time. Never. It was given to a saved people, to a people who, by and large, were already redeemed because, as we saw last time in Exodus 14, verse 31, the Exodus generation believed. They believed when they saw what God did to the Egyptians, the most powerful people on the planet, on the known, in the known world at that time, the most powerful man in the known world at that time, who begged them, go, get out, leave us. After they had lost all of their firstborn. I mean, what a horrible night that was. Because they didn't put the blood on the doorpost. The Egyptians who were unbelievers, that is. And so when the Israelites, when the Exodus generation saw what God did to the Egyptians and he parts the Red Sea and he slaughters, he drowns the charioteers and the the, the mighty army of Pharaoh, they believed. They feared God, it says in Exodus 14, 31. And they amand is the Hebrew word, the same the same stem of that word that is used for, for Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, where he believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But the law wasn't given for five more chapters in Exodus. It says they believe in Exodus 14 and the law's not given until Exodus 19 and into Exodus 20, where in, in Exodus 19, they're at Mount Sinai. And then in the beginning of Exodus 20, you get the Ten Commandments. The law is given five chapters later. The law is given to a redeemed people. doesn't mean that 100% of them were saved, but it means that the overwhelming majority were saved. So we can't say that the law was given in order to save a people because they were already saved. Salvation has always been by grace through faith 
in every age. Back then, thousands of years ago, and today in the year 2022, 2023, in the church age. Those are the first two reasons. The first two reasons for the law, which we saw last time, which was to reveal the holiness of God, to show the Israelites the inadequacy of their unrighteousness. And now we get into the third reason, which is to point the Israelites to the way of salvation and fellowship with God. In Hebrew Bible, the main word that is used for law is the word Torah. Torah, it's the Hebrew word, the noun Torah, which is related to the Hebrew verb yara. Yara means to instruct or to teach. At its core, Torah means instruction, direction. At its core, it doesn't mean law. I mean, that's one of the meanings of it. But its core, essential meaning, is instruction, direction. To quote my Old Testament prof, Ron Allen, who is who was and is a scholar of scholars, he said this, the principal meaning of the word Torah is not law, but instruction. It is a pictorial word that suggests Yahweh has pointed out with his finger the way of life. And in class, he'd always point the finger. That Yahweh, Torah is Yahweh's pointed finger. This is the way of life. Walk here, Torah says. Here in God's mercy. That is... What, that is the way Ron Allen says, and I think he says it very, very elegantly, very powerfully. God's provision of the law was an act of grace. It was a gracious gift to Israel. Now, most Christians don't think of the law that way, right? Most Christians think of the law in a very different way. We think that there's a dichotomy between grace and law, right? We think grace, oh, that's, that's sweet, that's good. And we think law, yuck, yeah, yucky, right? Good, grace, law, bad. We think there's a dichotomy between those two. There's not. There's not. One of the reasons why we think of the law as cold and prickly and bad, and we think of grace as good and warm and fuzzy, is because we have a misunderstanding of a verse like John 1.17. John 1.17 reads like this, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The passage, of John 1.17, where the apostle is saying this in the prologue of the Gospel of John, he's not saying that law is bad, law was bad, and now we got to the age of grace, <clears throat> and now we have grace. Grace is wonderful. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that grace is bad at all. I love it. Grace is wonderful. But the scripture isn't describing law bad, grace good. It doesn't create that dichotomy. The scripture describes the law as wonderful, as beautiful. Nehemiah 9.13, Nehemiah, Nehemiah says, Then you came down on Mount Sinai. That's where the law was given. And spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Or the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 77, May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Delight. Or the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verses 97 and 102 and 103, Oh, how I love your law. 
It is my, mediation, my meditation all the day. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The psalmist describes the law as sweet. The way we'd describe, the way we'd compare it to a nice bowl of tin roof bluebell ice cream. You know, bluebell just came out. They just brought back tin roof. I mean, that's just, that's sweet. The psalmist compares the law to something sweet. They didn't have bluebell back then. I feel sorry for them. They had honey, and he compares it to honey. He doesn't say the law is yucky. He says the law is wonderful. It's sweet and delicious. Paul says in Romans seven twelve. so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There is a contrast. There is a contrast in John 1.17. But it's not between law and grace. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. This is one of the principal passages that many Christians use to make this dichotomy. Law bad, grace good. There is a contrast in John 1.17, but it's not between law and grace. It's between grace and a superabundance of grace. God didn't give the law as, a, as an act of punishment to the Israelites. He gave it as an act of grace because it's the means by which they would receive the blessing, the national blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant. What John is teaching us in John 1.17 is that God's revelation of grace and truth have reached their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. God gave the law as a gracious gift, as a blessing to a redeemed people, to his chosen people, to the Israelites. In Galatians 3, Paul describes the law as an instructor. Galatians 3, 4, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The Greek word for tutor is paedagogos. Paedagogos, and a paedagogos back in ancient times, a tutor back in ancient times was very different than our tutors. Right? Today, you know, your, your, your child might have a tutor because maybe they need a little work on in, in geometry or in physics or something like that. Subjects that maybe we didn't love that much. Maybe they, they, they need some help in, in one of these subjects. So a tutor comes in to help them in some academic area. That's not really the way a tutor was used back then. A tutor was used back in ancient times almost like raising a child from age around age six into the teen years. The tutor would accompany the child everywhere. The tutor would protect the, ch the child from the wiles of the world, from the, the societal evils, the societal vices. While the child was with the tutor, the child was protected from the, the, the evils of the society. They had evils back then in their society, just like we do. And so the tutor served as a protector, and the tutor disciplined the child. He even disciplined the child, sometimes very severely. That's the image of a paedagogos in the hearers' minds, in the Galatians' minds, when Paul writes the letter of Galatians. A 
tutor, a teacher, an instructor who sometimes was even very strict, a tutor who would correct and discipline the child. The psalmist put it this way with respect to the discipline and the instruction that is associated with the law. Right, we're we're here in a spot in, in the text where Paul is linking the law to a tutor. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verses 71 and 72, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. He's speaking to God. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Here the psalmist compares the law to money. And he says, all the money in the world, that's not as good as the law. In fact, the part of the law that disciplined me that afflicted me, that's the part that I really appreciate, God. There's something wrong with the psalmist. Because he, he, he's saying to God, I really appreciated your discipline. I mean, is he mentally all there? This is part of the reason why we think of law and grace as a dichotomy. This is part of the reason why we think of law as something that is cold and prickly. We view this sort of attitude, this sort of approach of viewing the discipline and the correction of the law as something that is foreign to us, something that, that is unacceptable to us. We recoil at the idea that correction and discipline are gracious are an act of grace. We like the idea of no consequences. I mean, it's human nature, right? It's part of our fallen, broken nature. We like the idea that there aren't consequences for our sin. This is why we misuse the word grace, right? Some guy cheats on his wife and we say, give him grace. Some guy murders someone else and we say, give him grace. That's not what grace means. Grace doesn't mean no consequences. Grace means unmerited favor from God. That's what grace is, unmerited favor from God, like being forgiven for your sins. You don't deserve forgiveness for your sins, nor do I. We don't deserve that. We deserve God's judgment forever. But in his unmerited favor, he gives us that which we do not deserve, grace. That doesn't mean there are no consequences for sin. When David engaged in that great sin with Bathsheba, I say great not that it was good, but great that it was significant. When he engaged in that sin with Bathsheba, remember the prophet Nathan, David confesses to the Lord. He says, against you and against you only have I sinned. And God sends the prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes to David and says, God has forgiven you. David's forgiven, but he suffers the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life. I mean, we will study David and David's life. And after that sin with Bathsheba, I mean, the discipline is huge for years and years. Grace doesn't mean there are no consequences for sin. Grace means that we receive unmerited favor from God, favor that we do not deserve The correction and discipline of the law was a gracious gift from God because it pointed the people to God and to God's 
ways. It showed them their unrighteousness. It showed them their need for God's righteousness. It showed them their need for a Savior who would permanently remove sin. This takes us to the fourth reason for the law. The law was given to unify Israel as a nation, almost like a a constitution does for a nation, A, a constitution that unifies a nation. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 5. There God is speaking to the Israelites. And in verse 5, He says this. They've already been freed from Egypt. They're in the wilderness. At Mount Sinai, God is giving the law there in Exodus 19 and 20. And beyond, Exodus 19.5, God says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that's why we say the Mosaic covenant, that's why we call it a covenant, the word's right there, berit, the Mosaic law. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. God now speaks to Moses, and God tells Moses to communicate the words to the people. In a moment, the people will speak to Moses and say, Moses, communicate our words to God, because Moses is the mediator. Moses is the human mediator for the covenant, for the Mosaic covenant. Remember in the Abrahamic covenant, excuse me, there is no mediator. God comes directly to Abraham. God himself walks through the animal carcasses in the ritual in Genesis 15 while Abraham is sleeping. Because the covenant that God gave to Abraham is a permanent forever covenant. The Mosaic covenant has a different status than the Abrahamic covenant. I'm not saying that the Mosaic covenant is, is, is not significant. It is huge. It's just the Mosaic covenant in many ways is temporary. And so God treats and presents the Mosaic Covenant in a different way. He doesn't do it directly. He does it through mediators. He does it through angelic mediators, because as we saw last time, angels presented the law. And he does it through a human mediator, Moses. God gives the law to the angels. The angels gave the law to Moses. Moses gives the law to the people. Now, in some spots, God gives it directly to Moses, and Moses gives it to the people. This is what we are seeing here in Exodus 19. We're seeing Moses serve as the mediator from God to the people and from the people to Moses. Keep reading in verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words, which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Verses 5 and 6, we see the distinctiveness of Israel. Verse 5, you shall be my own possession, God says, among all the people. And God says, I have the authority to do this because all the earth is mine. You see that at the end of verse 5. All the earth is mine. I have the authority to do what I am doing, to designate you 
distinct from all the other nations. Then in verse 6, we continue to see the distinctiveness of Israel. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. You shall be a holy nation. And the people agree. The people agree to the covenant. They ratify the covenant. Verses 7 and 8, right? There, Israel's agreement is seen. They agree with the law, similar to the way a nation consents to a constitution. A constitution binds and unites a nation together. I mean, that's what our constitution does. That's why people seek, those who hate our nation, seek to undo the constitution because they know that's the uniting thing. Right? When the last of the 13 states, not colonies, states, ratified the Constitution in 1790, Rhode Island, boom, we had a nation. We had a nation that was unified under a document that all of us had ratified, at least at that time. Now, when future peoples, right? I mean, there may be people today who say, I don't like that part of the Constitution, Often, I mean, honestly, I think I don't, it's not that I think I don't like that part of the Constitution. I don't like that reinterpretation of the Constitution because often the court just makes it up. They just pull it out of their ear. They have been doing that for 40 or 50 years. But we are bound to a document that was agreed to in 17, by 1790 when the last of the states, the 13 states, ratified it. That document binds us as a nation. It unites us as a nation. This is what's happening with Israel. Israel formally becomes a nation in Exodus 19 when they consent to the covenant, when they consent to the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law. They ratify it there at Mount Sinai. They unify under a national legal document and don't miss the bilateral nature of this, right? God gives the law, God's part. They ratify it. They approve it. They consent to it, their part. Bilateral, there are two parties to this arrangement, to this covenant. They say, we will follow it. Now, they're going to fail abysmally, abysmally in following it. They'll violate it frequently, but this is what they agree to. So the fourth reason why God gave the law is to unify Israel as a nation. The fifth reason is to set Israel apart from the other peoples, from the other nations, so that she would be distinct from the pagan, idolatrous neighbors that she had. That's what holy means, right? Holy means separated. Holy means distinct. It means separate from the common, separate from the ordinary, separate from a world that is characterized by wickedness. God formed Israel to be a holy nation, to be a kingdom of priests, distinct from the world, yet in the world, separated from the world, yet in it, to be a light of divine truth to a dark, evil world. Deuteronomy 14.2 reads like this, Moses says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, or to use the old King James, to be a peculiar people unto himself. 
out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, meaning they were designed by God, crafted by God through the covenant, this covenant, through the Mosaic covenant, to be a special people unlike the rest. Israel was to be spiritually, morally, even culturally peculiar, if you like, to use the old King James, distinct, separated. And so God gives them this law to separate them from the rest, to give them and to serve as a hedge of protection, to insulate Israel from the evil of her nation, of, of, the, of the nations around her, of her neighbors. You can see how the special requirements of the law made Israel unique. Right? They have these special religious feasts. <clears throat> they have a special day of the week. Don't work on Saturday. Yeah, but what if it rained the other six days and, and, and the sun's out and now it's time to work? The Philistines are working on Saturday. The Moabite, right, because the Sabbath is on Saturday. The, the, the Midianites are working on Saturday. How, how come we can't work on Saturday, God? Because you're special. Because you're special. You can see how these special requirements of the law distinguish them from their neighbors, right? The, the special feasts, the special day of the week, the Sabbath, the special years. Not only can we not work on Saturday, but we've got to leave our field fallow every seventh year. Really? I mean, we need the wheat. We need the barley. What about the grapes? We can't, we can't harvest. We, we have to leave our field untouched every seventh year. What are we going to do, God? I'll provide for you, especially, because you're special to me. You're distinct among the nations. I'll provide for you miraculously. Now, of course, the Israelites ignored the the Sabbath year requirement, and so God took it because that's the math. That's the 70-year exile. You didn't let the, year, let the land be fallow every seventh years, seven years, so for 490 years, seven times seven, 49, right? That's how, they got, that's how God calculated the 70-year exile in Babylon. You didn't obey? I'll take it because God will not be mocked ever, ever. And so you have these distinctive characteristics of the law that were designed to make Israel distinct among her nation, among the, the nations around her, spiritually distinct, morally distinct, and culturally distinct. How about the year of Jubilee? Every 50th year. What are you talking about? We gotta forgive debts, but I lent money to that guy five years ago. It's forgiven. And we gotta, we got to free our slaves, free our Israelite slaves every year of Jubilee, every 50 years. But I, I, this has a financial impact on me, God. You're special to me. You're distinct. And I provide for you supernaturally if you will obey me. This is the fundamental part of the law. It's... You do this, and I do this. If you do X, I will do Y. If you obey me, I will bless you. Spectacularly. If you disobey me, I will curse you. 
spectacularly. This is at the core of the Mosaic Covenant, the bilateral nature of the Mosaic Law. This is what explains the history of Israel throughout the entire Old Testament, and it explains the history of Israel in the New Testament. It explains the history of Israel today, because today she is still being disciplined by God because she has rejected her Messiah. So in the Old Testament, the Israelites would obey God and they'd be blessed. The, the, the generation after the Exodus generation, the kids who saw all their parents die in the wilderness as punishment from God, they obey God because it was fresh in their mind. As the generations go on, they forget God, just like us. And so that generation after the Exodus generation, they're blessed. They're brought into the land of promise, which their parents were not allowed to do. They just wandered in circles in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died off. And then you see in the book of Judges, right? They'll obey God, and then they'll be blessed, and then they'll disobey God, and God will will punish them. And there's the cycle of the sin cycle, right? Sin, God punishes They repent, God relents, God blesses them by giving them peace, and then they sin, and then the cycle just repeats itself, and it becomes almost a downward cycle because it gets worse and worse as the book of Judges go on. That's the history of Israel. They obey, God blesses them. They disobey, and God curses them. Now, the general principle about obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings punishment from God, that applies to everyone. That applies to all the nations. That applies to Gentile nations. That applies to individuals. Obedience always precedes blessing. That general principle applies to everyone and to every nation. But the Mosaic Covenant is unique for Israel because there are special blessings for Israel. God gave them a special piece of real estate in the Middle East forever. There are special blessings for a special people. And this is part of the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant. How about the dietary rules? What do you mean we can't have bacon with our eggs, God? How about a, an oyster po' boy? I can't have an oyster po' boy? No, no, no shrimp etouffee? No. You can have the etouffee, but not the shrimp. Right? The dietary requirements of the law distinguish them from their peop- from, the, from the, the, the peoples around them, from the neighboring nations. And there were many other unique things. Customs distinguish people. The customs of the Israelites were designed by God to insulate them from the wicked cultures of the neighbors around them. A people's culture separates them. I mean, we see that today. In different cultures. Cultures are, are distinct from other cultures, right? When, when, when my folks lived in, in Costa Rica, we go to Costa Rica. I mean, Americans are distinct. Our culture, I mean, we're, we're, we're all kind of influenced by the West. They're influenced by the West in Costa Rica or my family in Mexico. And we're influenced by the West here in the States. But culturally, we're different, A culture distinguishes a people, and this is what God was giving them. They were to be spiritually, morally, and even culturally distinct. It was a hedge of protection to protect them from the pagans around them. Israel's uniqueness was part of God's design for evangelism. 
Let me say that again. Israel's uniqueness was part of God's design for Old Testament evangelism so that her neighbors would say, the Israelites are totally different from us. Not so much racially. I mean, they were like cousins, right? In many ways, they were racially similar. Through Lot, the Israelites were were similar to the Moabites and the Ammonites. Through Esau, the Israelites were similar to the Edomites. Through one of Abraham's sons from a wife later than Sarah, the Israelites were similar to the Midianites. So racially they're similar, but culturally they're very different. Religiously they're very different. And so the uniqueness of the Israelites, which they were to have because of the Mosaic Covenant... That uniqueness was designed by God so that neighboring peoples would see the Israelites and say, you're different than us. And God blesses you. God blesses you, though you are distinct from us. We think we have access to God. Our our pagan gods, Dagon for the Philistines, or or the God of the Moabites, we think we have access to God. You're different than us. And God seems to be blessing you. At least that was the design. God didn't bless them frequently because they disobeyed. But the design of the covenant is distinctiveness and God's blessing so that the neighboring cultures, the neighboring nations would say, maybe we need to look into who your God is because you have all this incredible blessing. I mean, this is what happens with Ruth, right? Ruth attaches herself to Israel through first through Naomi. And then when she marries Boaz. In the Old Testament, evangelism was for the nations to come to Israel. Right? The Queen of Sheba. That's what the Queen of Sheba does. In the Old Testament, evangelism was for the nations to come to Israel to learn about the living God. In the New Testament, this is reversed. God reverses it in the New Testament where he sends out the church Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the world. It's reversed in the New Testament where the church is sent out to bring the good news to the nations. The Apostle John calls the church a kingdom of priests in Revelation 1.16. The Apostle Paul calls the church a people for his own possession for God incarnate's possession, for Christ's possession. That's the context in Titus 2.14. The Apostle Peter calls the church a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a chosen race. In 1 Peter 2.9, are the apostles saying that the church replaces Israel? No, no, no. The apostles are using words that otherwise apply to Israel, not because the church replaces Israel, but because the church is given Incredible blessings, blessings that often make Christians yawn, blessings that are often viewed as Christians as whatever, boring. But the fact that the New Testament apostles, apostles who were writing to church age believers, use words that are otherwise used for Israel. That fact reveals, and and the the various teachings in the New Testament reveal, that the church is given phenomenal blessings similar to, not identical with, similar to those of Israel. The church temporarily performs some of the functions that Israel was called to do. 
because of Israel's rebellion, God has temporarily set aside Israel and given some of her responsibilities to another entity. God, because of Israel's rebellion, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Part of God's discipline to Israel is the church age. That's part of God's, that's part of the outworking of the Mosaic Covenant where God pushes pause on Israel's clock. God is not blessing Israel today. The Israel that was created in 1948 that exists today is not a godly Israel. It's not an Israel that worships Yeshua. It's, by and large, an atheistic Israel. It's a secular Israel. Now that Israel fits in prophecy, it's, it's the regathering in unbelief, but that's not God's God blessing them. In the church age, God has temporarily, I've used the word temporarily multiple times now because I want to be crystal clear that the church doesn't replace Israel. God has temporarily set aside Israel. That's part of the outworking of the Mosaic Covenant because they're rejecting, they're disobeying God by rejecting their Messiah, by killing him. You don't get much more rejection than that. And so God has pushed pause on their clock. He's created the church, which was always in his plan. It's not plan B. Or to use Lewis Perry Chafer's language, it's the intercalation of the church. The, 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 the sequencing of Israel is paused temporarily. God has the church, which he's always planned since eternity past. And then when the head of the church returns to remove the church, to bring the church home, to be with him in the heaven, the third heaven, then he will return and push play once again on Israel's clock. And so in the meantime, we enjoy some of the, some, not all, some, of the functions of Israel. We enjoy some of the blessings, some of the blessings temporarily that were given to Israel. Things that are phenomenal for church age believers that we cannot, we must not take lightly. Sadly, Israel often ignored God's design for her to be unique, to be spiritually, morally, and culturally unique. Sadly, Many, many, many Jews today only have the cultural uniqueness. They don't have the spiritual uniqueness. They don't even have the moral uniqueness. Because in many circles, I, I, I used to work with a, with, with a, a, with a lawyer who was, who was Jewish. And, you know, we, we, we talk about the... the the scripture and the idea, many things that were in the law, she found an abomination. Well, of course, homosexuality is okay, Alex. Well, but well, but you're, you're 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 Jewish and you're culturally Jewish, but you you disregard. You say you're culturally Jewish, but you're not following the moral principles that, were, that God gave to the Jews. In Leviticus, for example, how can that be? Because they're in rebellion. Culturally, 
they've continued this distinctiveness, but often they've rejected the moral distinctiveness, and clearly they've rejected the spiritual dis- distinctiveness. And so Israel often did not follow the constitution that they agreed to, that they ratified there at Mount Sinai. This resulted back then in the age of Israel, and even today it resulted in Israelites adopting the evil ways of their pagan neighbors. And for that matter, this is what the church does. right? Because the church doesn't view its distinctiveness. I'm not saying we're Israel, but we do have distinctiveness. We are called to be God's people, to be holy in a world that is not. But because we adopt what our pagan neighbors do, we often reject God. Israel did it. Church age believers do it. We need to be very careful to guard ourselves, as Israel was to do, to guard ourselves from the ways of the world, even though we live in the world and we're to minister to the world. We're not to be islands unto ourselves. This is the Mosaic Covenant, and we will see more of the Mosaic Covenant next time we're together. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it in peace. We ask that you unfold these things in our mind. We ask that you impress on us the significance of what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do. We ask that you give us awe and wonder that we may maybe appreciate who you are and what you do for us throughout the ages. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.